I want to invite you to turn to some uh, scripture this morning. I really have on my heart to teach on the subject of faith. Well, you can't teach on the subject of faith without getting to Mark 11 sooner or later, so you might as well just start there. So turn with me to Mark chapter 11. You know one way that you can uh, judge your spiritual progress, your spiritual growth, is the attitude that you have toward things you've heard before. Paul said, writing to the Corinthians, I planted Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. When you get past the point where you think, oh no, he's going to teach that again? (laughs) To realizing the importance of something so simple. I don't think we can ever exhaust the knowledge concerning the subject of faith, I don't think we can overestimate its importance. So we'll start in Mark chapter 11. We won't read the whole story, but just to remind you the context, the day before these events that we're going to read took place, Jesus came to a fig tree expecting to find figs on it. And there were no figs on the tree. So he cursed it. He said, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And the way the Bible says it is interesting. Well, maybe we ought to back up to verse 14. I want you to see, again, what the Bible says about how Jesus handled a circumstance that was non-productive. It was a non-fruitful situation. The tree was supposed to have figs on it, but it didn't. And so Jesus answered Notice in verse 14, it said, Jesus answered and said to it. The importance of this to me is to recognize that your answer to circumstances is what counts. Now, some people might think that since Jesus was the son of God, he never had any situations that weren't the way they were supposed to be. But we're always going to face circumstances and situations that contradict what the Bible says is ours. That contradict what blessing of the Lord belongs to us. Jesus answered the circumstance and said, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. Now we'll pick up the story in verse 20. And in the morning, meaning the next morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, calling to remembrance, said unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. And Jesus answering said unto them, Have faith in God. Other translations show that as have the faith of God. From that translation, have the faith of God, we sometimes coin the phrase, have the God kind of faith. Well, what would the God kind of faith be other than the faith that God has or the faith of God? And notice Jesus did not say that this was something that was done because he was the son of God. He's instructing, first and foremost, right out of the gate. He's telling the disciples they can do the same thing. The same power that was available to him that killed the fig tree, dried it up from the roots, is available to you and me 
under certain circumstances. So Jesus answering said unto them, Have faith in God or have the faith of God. For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, verse 24, What things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you shall have them. I want you to notice, first and foremost, the first thing Jesus tells us about this faith of God, or the God kind of faith, is that it works by your words. Words transmit faith. That's not the only thing they can transmit. They can transmit defeat, fear, doubt, and so forth. But words are containers. Words count. Jesus said you could have what you say. Words bring things to pass. Words change things. His words change the fig tree. Now, folks, the fig tree is symbolic. It was a real and literal situation that took place just as the Bible describes. But the fig tree always represents Israel. You may remember when Jesus was uh, talking to the disciples about signs of the end. He said, watch the fig tree and the other trees. If you want to know the, the times that we're living in, keep your eye on the fig tree and the other trees. And that represented Israel and the other nations. He talked about when you saw certain things from the fig tree, then you'd know where we were on God's timeline. So this represents Israel as well as being a natural occurrence of a literal physical tree. Jesus is cursing the old covenant. He's saying this is the end of Judaism as far as God was concerned. He's ushering in something more. He's identifying that the works of the Old Testament no longer apply. Because salvation doesn't come by works. Salvation comes through faith in Jesus. Now I want you to look at some other things with me about this subject of faith. Notice with me in uh, James chapter 1. Beginning in verse 2, James said, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. The word temptation means test, trial, or affliction. He's talking about hard places. He says, count it all joy when you're in a hard place. Now, that's not the normal way we operate, is it? And more to the point, if we are going to be joyful, it's going to be because we have to count it joy in the middle of trouble and affliction. So he said, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, now the wisdom he's talking about has to be related to the test, trial, or affliction that we're in. See, the Bible says that Jesus, through the new birth, us coming into the family of God, the Bible says that Jesus has already been made wisdom to us. Well, then why is James talking about asking for wisdom if Jesus has already been made wisdom to us? Well, the only explanation, the only thing that would fit is if he's talking about wisdom to know what to do specifically in the middle of your trial or your adversity. So he says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith 
Here's the criteria. Let him ask in faith, nothing, nothing wavering. For he that wavers is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Notice he goes from talking about asking for wisdom, specific wisdom, in the situations that, that we're uh, facing or in the middle of, test, trial, and afflictions, adversities. Notice he goes from talking about wisdom, about what to do or what action to take relating to our circumstances to showing us the principle of receiving anything from the Lord. See, he's not just saying that, the, that uh, asking in faith, the prayer of faith, will work to bring you wisdom to know what to do in the middle of your trouble. He's saying wisdom is the principle whereby you receive anything or everything from the Lord. Faith is that principle. The reason faith is so important, or one reason at least that faith is so important, is that it's the only means whereby we can receive from the Lord. It's the only way. We all know of times perhaps that we've grown out of when we were less mature spiritually, where we would try to beg God to do something. Well, begging prayers don't work. And it's such a tragedy to see people that through ignorance of the word, they don't know either how to ask in faith, how to pray in faith, or that they're even supposed to pray in faith. And because of that, many people are carried under, brought to ruin by difficulties, circumstances, or adversities that they were designed by the new birth, that they were designed to have victory over. Such a tragedy for people to, to suffer defeat at the hands of something that Jesus paid for. Paid for and recreated them for the purpose of gaining victory in every situation. So often people say things like, well, when we get to heaven, we're going to ask the Lord, why did he let this happen to me? Well, folks, the reason anything happens to you and me is because there's an equal opportunity destroyer out there. His name's the devil. But Jesus overcame everything the devil can do. Now, the Bible's telling us that if we will commit ourselves and learn to operate in this thing called faith, believing in our hearts and saying with our mouth, that the enemy's attacks won't take us under. They won't defeat us, but instead we will be more than conquerors over them. Now look with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Notice in verse 6, it says, but without faith, it's impossible to please him, him meaning God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now, everybody that names the name of Jesus, every church that believes in the name of Jesus would agree that faith is necessary to come into or enter into the family of God. The Bible's real clear on that. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for example, says you are saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Everybody recognizes that faith is necessary for salvation. 
Paul tells us this in Romans chapter 10. He says, for with the heart man believeth and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Everybody agrees that believing in the heart and saying with the mouth is the way that we enter into the family of God. It's the way we enter into the new birth. It's the way we receive the blessing of salvation. But what does salvation mean? For too many in the church world, salvation means just forgiveness of sins. But that's not all Jesus paid for. The same scripture that tells us that Jesus was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities tells us that the chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. So salvation, even as the word itself is defined in both Old Testament and New Testament, it's an all-inclusive term that means deliverance and rescue in every area. Well, how are we going to experience deliverance and rescue in every area the same way we experience rescue from sins the same way we experience the forgiveness of sins that Jesus paid the price for and that is through this thing called faith so without faith it's impossible to please him here's why for he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him now notice that folks The person that comes to God, how do we come to God? Well, we come to him in prayer. He's talking about the family of God. He's not just talking about entering into the family of God. He's talking about those that are already in. And he that comes to God must believe that he is. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means we must believe that he is God. But what does that mean? Well, if he is God, then he's bigger than any enemy we have. If he's God, then nothing's impossible to him. If he's God, then he is the greatest force there is. So this thing called faith that pleases God identifies and accepts that he is God. But then it has to accept something else. It also has to accept that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now, folks, how many of you have ever had the devil tell you you don't deserve something? What's he doing? He's trying to shake your confidence in God being your rewarder. He's trying to tell you that you don't deserve a reward from God. But by definition concerning this verse, if you accept that, then you can't be pleasing to God. That's not the kind of faith that pleases God because God expects you to believe that he is God and that he is your rewarder. So the devil tries to steal your reward by telling you you don't deserve your reward. You know what this word rewarder means? It means renumerator. In other words, there's a great payoff to serve God and to trust Him. Turn back with me to the Old Testament, chapter uh, 13 of Numbers. The Bible says that the things that happened to Israel in the Old Testament are types and shadows for us. In other words, they're principles or established principles that we can understand and that will help and benefit us. Let's start in Numbers, chapter 13, verse 17. 
It says, and Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan. This is when they come to the edge of the promised land. And Moses takes one person from each of the 12 tribes of Israel to send them into this promised land to spy out the land. And here's his instruction to them. He sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said unto them, go you up this way southward and go into the mountain and see the land, what it is, and the people that dwell therein, whether they be strong or weak, few or many. And what the land is that they dwell in, whether it be good or bad, and what cities they be that they dwell in, whether in tents or in strongholds, and what the land is, whether it be fat or lean, whether there be wood therein or not, and be ye of good courage and bring up the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first striped grapes. So they went up and searched the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehob as the men came to Hamath. And they ascended by the south and came unto Hebron where three guys, children of Anak were. Well, you pronounce them. Now, Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And they came into the brook of Eskel and cut down from thence a branch with one cluster of grapes. And they bare it between two upon a staff and they brought of the pomegranates and of the figs. The place was called the brook of Eskel because of the cluster of grapes which the children of Israel cut down from thence. And they returned from searching of the land after 40 days. And they went and came unto Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel unto the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh and brought back word unto them and unto all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him and said, We came into the land whether thou sentest us and surely it flows with milk and honey. And this is the fruit of it. And that's what God had told them already. God had told them that he was taking them to a land of milk and honey. He also told them that the land was where the Canaanites were and the Amalekites and the Hittites and the otherites. Shouldn't have been any surprise. There are five different times that God told them through Moses about the land they were going to and whose land it was. No surprise whatsoever to find out they're there. So they said, this is the fruit of the land. It's a land that flows with milk and honey. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land. And the cities are walled and very great. Moreover, we saw the children of Anak there, just like God said they would. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, just like God said they did. The Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, just like God has already told them they did. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. Now, folks, I want you to notice some things about what they said. We'll pick up the story here in just a moment. But I want you to notice some things that the the ten spies said. They said, here's the fruit of the land. It's a land that flows with milk and honey. But the Hittites are there, and the children of Anak are there, and the Jebusites and the Amorites and the Canaanites. All these people are there. Notice how they spent more time talking about the people than the land. Now, the land is what God's already said is theirs. The land is what God said he was taking them to. He told them it was a land flowing with milk and honey. He told them this is the promised land. Well, promise means something to them, doesn't it? It certainly should. If it's the promised land, it's the land that God has promised to them. 
Now, what experience does Israel have with warfare at this point? None. They fought no battles. They were delivered by God's mighty hand from the land of Egypt. They saw the ten plagues. They saw the power of God's miracles. They saw when Pharaoh changed his mind after letting them go and came to attack them. They were in a military, militarily impossible position. They had mountains on two sides of them. We had Pharaoh's army, the greatest military force on the face of the earth at that time, in front of them, and behind them they had the Red Sea. And then they saw God's deliverance. They saw the Red Sea part. They went over on dry ground. When Pharaoh sent his chariots and his army after them, the Red Sea came back together again and destroyed them. What do they know about military might? Nothing. What has it gotten them to so far? Total and complete victory. God's already destroyed without them having to do a thing, without them even having to throw a rock. God has delivered them from the greatest military force on the face of the earth. Now, what are the children of Anak in comparison to Pharaoh's army? What are the Amorites in comparison to Pharaoh's army? What are the Jebusites or the Hittites or the Canaanites or anybody else I left off the list? What are they in relation to Pharaoh's army? Could any of those people, could all of those people together joining forces, could any of them or all of them defeat Pharaoh's army in a, in a battle? Not a chance. Not a chance. So why are these guys not saying what Caleb and Joshua say? Something along the lines of, this is a piece of cake. Why are they not going into the promised land thinking, well, Moses wants us to tell him who lives there and what their living conditions are, whether they live in permanent structures or temporary structures, whether or not they're people that will pick up and leave and run, or whether they're people that will stay and fight. But who cares? Look at what God did to Pharaoh. Now, folks, I'm not just trying to throw rocks at them and pick at them. But shouldn't we live in the same way with even greater evidence? As a people that have been delivered from all the power of the devil? I would submit to you folks that their position, they meaning the ten spies, their position concerning the, the people that live in the promised land, the land that God has already given to them, their position and their attitude toward them isn't much different than the way most Christians operate today. They try to judge God by the size of their problem. Instead of judging their problem as being of little or no significance, because of what we've already seen God do for us. Now remember this thing called faith. This thing called faith is what pleases God. Without faith it's impossible to please him. For those that come to him must believe that he's God. And as we said, as God, that means he's bigger than any problem or any enemy. And they must believe that he's a rewarder. Of them that diligently seek him. Now folks I would submit to you that those are the two uh, um, characteristics. That these ten spies have totally abandoned. 
since they're so afraid of the people, it's clear that they're not looking at God as being God or strong enough to deliver them, these people, into their hands. They can't be looking at God as being the all-powerful one that has given them land that other people are trespassing on. They've abandoned the thought that their reward, the promised land, is truly theirs. The Caleb and Joshua, who see the same people, who see the same fruit of the land, who see the same walled cities, who saw, saw every circumstance and everything that the other ten did, Caleb and Joshua are on God's side. And Caleb stills the people. He stops them from getting worked up at the size of the armies or the enemies or the walls or whatever. Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. How? They haven't been building an army. This is about two years after they come from uh, the bondage of Egypt. The Bible tells us about how they go to a certain place where Moses goes up onto the top of the mountain, Mount Sinai, and he receives the commandments of God. It tells us about the time period that they move from one place to another, which wasn't a whole lot. They work their way toward the promised land, but they don't have anybody to fight in the meantime. They didn't have to fight any battles between the Red Sea and the edge of the promised land right by the Jordan River. It's not like they've been building up an army or training. They just have been traveling a relatively short distance to get to the promised land. So how is it that Caleb says we're well able to do it? He can't be looking at the size of Israel's army. He can't be looking at their military experience. They don't have any. So when Caleb steals the people and says, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it, what's that about? It shows in the multitude of the people, the multitudes of the congregation, the millions of people that make up this land, make up this uh, congregation of Israel. It means they believe God is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That's the only difference, folks. That's the only difference between the ten and the two. And I want you to realize that difference was simply a choice that was made. It's not because Caleb and Joshua are stronger physically than the ten that they took a different position. It's not because Caleb and Joshua have some strength in their personality that the other ten don't have. It's because Caleb and Joshua made a choice to believe something based on what they saw that everybody saw. To believe based on what God did for them in Egypt. To believe based on what God did for them at the Red Sea. To believe based on the manna that would be provided for Israel. To believe based upon the smoke and the lightnings and the thunder and everything that happened on Mount Sinai. That's the only difference in any of the people in this group. Caleb and Joshua just simply said, God said the land's ours, so the land's ours. Does it look like it's theirs? No, that's what the ten are talking about. The ten are saying, this doesn't look like our land. 
because the children of Anak are there and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and whoever else is on the list. It doesn't look like our land. But folks, think this through. What made the land a land of milk and honey? The labors of the Hittites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Jebusites. God's had these people, all these people that the ten are afraid of. He sent all these tribes of people taking care of the land of, 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 that he's promised to Israel. That's why they're there. They're not there to defend their land. They're there as a part of God's plan to take care of the land because he's bringing his people into it. Fast forward 40 years after the children of Israel spend that period of time wandering in the wilderness because they refused to go in to take the promised land. 40 years later, God tells Moses and Joshua, specifically Joshua, he said, you'll drive these people out one by one, not all at once. But one by one, tribe by tribe, people by people, so that the land doesn't overwhelm you. In other words, he's saying, if all these people are destroyed and taken, defeated at one time, it'll be too big a land for you to take care of. So I'm going to let you defeat enemy by enemy, people by people, so that they can keep the land in good shape until you get to that part where they are. Now, folks, that's not the way we like things to go. We want all of our enemies to be destroyed in a moment of time. How about we just all pray and agree together that everybody else will die? (laughs) That way we won't have any enemies to deal with. We can start laying back and eating bonbons right away with virtually no work to do. That's the way we'd like it to be, isn't it? We don't want to have to go out against our enemies. We don't want to have to face them, especially if they look bigger than us. Now, we're okay with little enemies. We're okay with enemies that don't have a chance against us. But when you're fighting enemies that don't have a chance against you, what do you need God for? See, folks, the problem's got to be bigger than yourself for us to recognize that it was God that brought us through. There's no need for God to get involved if you can take care of it yourself. Well, clearly this was not one of those situations. So Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go against the people, for they are stronger than we are. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched under the children of Israel. Here's the evil report. Saying, saying, remember the principle of faith is to believe in your heart and say with your mouth. Jesus said, On one occasion by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. Remember the principle of faith that we read in Mark chapter 11, verse 23. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, 
be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass he shall have whatsoever he saith now folks that works whether you're working it or not everybody in every situation has what they say you can either say the right things and have good things have the blessings of God you can either speak the word and receive the blessings of God or you can speak about talk, talk about the things that you see which is what they did and fail to take hold of the blessings that God has provided for you already one of the great tragedies is when Christians the family of God is gathered into heaven and people will see all that they forfeited because they did not believe, whether it was through ignorance or, or choice. When they see all the things that the enemy lorded over them, that the devil held them in bondage to, with their eyes wide open, which they will be when we get to heaven, and see that Jesus had already defeated those. The Bible says that God will wipe away every tear. What are people crying about in heaven? I believe a big part of it will be when our eyes are open and people see the victory that they forfeited because of wrong thinking, wrong believing, and saying the wrong things. So we've got 10 of them squaring off, 10 of these 12 spies squaring off and bring in an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are men of a great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. Now, folks, I want you to realize that there are two positions on this issue that they're facing. Most important issue most important decision that any of Israel has ever faced. They've heard from the ten spies who say we can't do it because the people are stronger than we are. They have greater defenses than we're able to overcome. And Caleb and Joshua, we'll find out in chapter 14 that Joshua is right there on the same side with Caleb. Saying we can do it, God's on our side, so we can take the land. So you got ten against two. You got 10 saying, we can't do it because of what we see. Two are saying, we saw the same things. That's not a big deal. God's on our side. But the congregation of Israel hadn't decided yet. It's the equivalent of seeing the word, the promise of God's word that says something belongs to us, and the devil telling us, whispering in our ear, saying, you can't have that. Yeah, God promised it to others, but you don't deserve it. It doesn't belong to you because of things you've done or haven't done or you're not strong enough or whatever. Chapter 14. And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried and the people wept that night. Which side did they take? They believed the majority report. Folks, the majority report is always going to be in line with the spirit of this world. Which means if you're going to live a supernatural life, if you're going to live according to this God kind of faith, that means you're going to have to answer 
you're going to have to make your decision based on something other than the physical evidence. Nothing wrong with looking at the physical evidence. Caleb and Joshua saw it too. But the physical evidence wasn't enough to shake the truth of the promise that Caleb and Joshua had accepted that the land was theirs. That God would be with them. And he's greater than any of the armies or the people that they saw in the land. So the congregation made their choice. They lifted up their voice and they wept. Believing the ten spies. Why did they put such confidence in the ten? Why did they believe the ten? Ten people. Please get this. Ten people set the course for a failure that encompassed a whole generation of people. Ten people. It's amazing what little things can defeat people. It's amazing what little things people allow to defeat them. One scripture that's always fascinated me is it says that when we come to the place where we see things openly, when we come to the place, and this will be when we get to heaven, I'm sure, where we are able to look at the devil for who he is, not who he says he is, not who he pretends to be, but who he really is. It says that we will look at him and say, is this the guy that caused all the problems? Now, folks, that scripture speaks to me. That scripture tells me that if that's what I'm going to think when I can look at him with my spiritual eyes wide open, why not think that now? That's the same situation in principle that Israel is facing here. The ten spies, as far as they're concerned, but just them so far, or until chapter 14, verse 1, they determined that the walls were too big around the cities, that the people were too great, too numerous or too strong or whatever. And us, from our vantage point, looking back at this, it's easy for us to look at it and say, that's what scared them off? We have the ability to see 40 years into the future at how God took the promised land or defeated the enemies of Israel so that they could take possession of it. Well, if Joshua and the children of this generation were able to do it, why weren't these people able to do it? And the answer is very simple. They allowed the things that they saw to turn them away from the truth of what God said. And folks, that's always going to be the fight of faith. Always. The devil is going to try to throw things at you physical evidence, physical proof, or physical circumstances that he'll claim to be proof to try to get you to move from that position of faith that believes that God is God and that he's a rewarder of you and me because we seek him. So the congregation lifted up their voice and cried and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, 
Or would God we had died in this wilderness? Keep those words in mind. And wherefore has the Lord brought us unto this land to fall by the sword that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return to Egypt? And they said one to another, let us make us a captain and go down to the end of the street and start another church. Let us make us a captain and let us return into Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, meaning they were two of the twelve spies, rent their clothes. And they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us a land which floweth with milk and honey. Only rebel ye not against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. Now, folks, I want you to see something here. It's not too late. If it was too late, Caleb and Joshua would have been wasting their time to say, trust in God. He'll see us through. He'll deliver it into our hands. So even though the children of Israel have wept over the report, the evil report that the ten spies brought back to them, it's not too late. Caleb and Joshua are trying to tell them, look, seeing these people and recognizing or uh, coming to the understanding that they've got walls around their cities, that doesn't mean anything. We find out 40 years later when Uh, Moses sent two spies into the land of Canaan to see how things were going. The city that has the great walls, the city of Jericho. The two spies come to understanding through Rahab the harlot. They come to the understanding that these people were afraid of them. The people, the inhabitants of the city of Jericho were afraid of Israel back then. Because they knew that God had given them the land. Word had gotten to them. That God, the one that defeated the greatest military force on the face of the earth, Pharaoh's army, brought them over on dry ground through the Red Sea, performed an impossible miracle, and then destroyed Pharaoh's army when they chased after Israel into the sea. Word's gotten around. They know, even now, even at this point in Numbers chapter 13 and 14, the people of Jericho know that God has given them the land. So what the ten spies assumed and accepted on their behalf when they said we're grasshoppers in our sight and we're grasshoppers in their sight too, only half of that was true. They may have looked like grasshoppers in their own sight, But the people of the city of Jericho wasn't looking at grasshoppers. They saw an army that couldn't be defeated because of God's help. But it's not too late. Sure, they've cried. Sure, they've gotten into the flesh. Sure, they've allowed their emotions to carry them away. But it's not too late yet. And Caleb and Joshua tell them that. Only rebel not against the Lord. Verse 10, now it becomes too late. But all the congregation bade stone them with stones. 
And the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. Once God has to step in and defend Moses and Aaron and probably Caleb and Joshua too, then they've sealed their decision. And the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. Now, folks, there's millions of people. The estimates of people, the number of people that came out of Egypt is between 2 and 7 million people, depending on whose estimates you want to accept. If we take the lowest number, 2 million people is still a lot of folks. And so these millions of people, however many millions they were, these millions of people take sides against Caleb and Joshua and Moses and Aaron. So you got... Two to seven million people on one hand, you've got four people on the other hand. And just to show you the power of God, the staying power of God, the protecting power of God, the multiplied millions of people were not able to take hold of the four. Now, if God would defend these four guys like that, what would he have done for the children of Israel if they had gone in to take the promised land? So the millions witnessed the power of God. They witnessed the defense of God. Just not on their behalf. Now I don't know what would have happened. But I would like to think. That the intelligent people. When they saw the glory of the Lord appear. Between the millions and the four. I would like to think that there would be somebody in that crowd that would say, wait, 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 wait. Let's think this through. We were about to kill these four people because we thought that they had led us into an impossible situation. But look how God defended them. Maybe we ought to reconsider. You know the problem with being deceived? You don't know you're deceived. And the Lord said unto Moses, How long will these people provoke me? And how long will it be before they believe me for all the signs which I have showed unto them? I will smite them with pestilence and disinherit them and will make of thee a great nation, greater nation and mightier than they. Let me make a, just a comment about something, folks. A lot of people have problems understanding Who's doing what when it comes to destruction? A lot of people, I'm talking about church people, have the idea that God brings sickness and disease or tragedy and, and disaster upon people to teach them something, to humble them, to whatever. The Bible says that that cannot be. The Bible says that God cannot be tempted with evil, nor does he tempt man with evil. Well, disaster sickness and disease, destruction, all that's evil. But there are times when Israel disobeyed God to the point where there was a plague that went through the, the people of Israel. And multiplied thousands of people were killed. And it's important to recognize something. Even in Israel, I'm sorry, even before Israel came out of Egypt, 
the last of the ten plagues was the death of the firstborn. You remember that? Well, who killed the firstborn? The firstborn of every house that was not protected by the blood was killed by the angel of the Lord. Now, how can God not be a killer if he took place or took part in those plagues? And plagues aren't ever sickness and disease. Plagues are simply death. The Bible talks about the, uh, the sons of Korah, about the, the plague that came upon them. The Bible talks about another, another time when Israel was operating in, in disobedience. And there was a plague that went through the, the camp of Israel. And Moses had to instruct Aaron to go make an atonement for the people and the plague was stopped. Well, what was that plague? It was the angel of death. God doesn't use sickness or disease to kill people. But there were times where people under the old covenant were destroyed because they separated themselves from God's mercy. But the Bible says in Romans chapter 8 that God has now condemned sin in the flesh. What that means is Jesus made a sacrifice for man, for the sin of mankind, separate from his body. Here's what that means. That means under the old covenant there was no way because there was no worthy sacrifice that could be made other than the temporary one of the day of atonement and such, ritual sacrifices. There was no way that God could judge sin apart from man because they were joined. But when Jesus shed his blood for man's spiritual well-being, his physical well-being, and even his soul, then judgment was passed upon sin and literally death, spiritual death, apart from mankind, which meant that God could finally, through the work of Jesus, could finally, and only through the work of Jesus, only through the substitutionary sacrifice that Jesus made, was God able to judge sin apart from mankind. Jesus became the substitute. Judgment fell on Jesus because of the judgment of spiritual, sin and spiritual death. That was Jewish. So when the Bible says that God judged sin in the flesh, condemned sin in the flesh, it simply means that for the first time ever, God was able to deal with sin without having to deal with the man that was bound by it. And folks, that's what the judgment that fell on Jesus was all about. That's what the three days and nights in the heart of the earth was all about. See, if there was not a price to pay for spiritual death, after Jesus died physically, then he could have been raised from the dead or made alive and just stepped down off the cross. But there was still more of a price, a penalty or a judgment that had to be made. And it took three days and nights in the heart of the earth for Jesus to pay that price. But Romans chapter 4 verse 25, I believe it is, said that when the justification was made at the very moment that the price was paid for sin, Jesus was raised from the dead. And I got to tell you, this is just my opinion. I don't know that there's any way we could prove it or disprove it. But I believe that's what Jesus is sweating blood about in the Garden of Gethsemane. He died quickly on the cross, quicker on the cross than he did, than, uh, uh, than did either of the two thieves that were on his right and his left. 
Jesus cannot be agonizing, in my opinion. He cannot be agonizing in the Garden of Gethsemane over the, just the, the few hours that he hung on the cross. And for Jesus to be the firstborn from among the dead, that has to mean spiritual death. So when the Bible says that Jesus was made sin for us, he paid the price for sinful man. Not righteous man. He didn't go to Abraham's bosom. He had to experience hell for the price for sin and death to be paid. So when the Bible talks in the Old Testament about God related to a plague or a pestilence, it's not talking about sickness and disease. God's not the author of sickness and disease. He didn't create it. He doesn't use it. But there were times in the Old Testament where the plague wiped out those children of disobedience. But thank God now, through the work of Jesus, the enemy is the one that kills, steals, and destroys. And Jesus came so that we might have life. Does that make sense? So God says, stand back, Moses. I'll start over with you. Verse 13, and Moses said unto the Lord, then the Egyptians shall hear it. For thou broughtest up this people in thy might from among them, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. For they have heard that thou, Lord, art among these people, that thou, Lord, art seen face to face, and that thy cloud standeth over them, and thou goest before them by the daytime in a pillar of a cloud and in a pillar of fire by night. I want you to notice something. Moses is saying that the children of, that inhabit, the people that inhabit the land of Canaan, have heard all these things that happened in Egypt. They know that they've heard these things. That's why Rahab tells them 40 years later, we've been wondering where you guys were. We knew the land was yours. How did they know that? Because words come from Egypt. After the armies were destroyed, the Egyptian armies are destroyed. Word has gotten around. Don't mess with these people. God is with them. That's why the people of the land, of the promised land, the land of Canaan, are afraid. Your enemy doesn't think the way you think he does. There's always something more to standing together with God than what the devil will let on. So Moses said, now if you shall kill all these people as one man, then the nations which have heard the fame of thee will speak, saying, because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land which he sware unto them, therefore he hath slain them in the wilderness. I want you to notice how Moses understands that God's um, suggestion to do away with these people would take place. He said you would kill them as one man. That means die instantly. Not sickness and disease, not languish with leprosy for 40 years, but die as one man. 
And he said the Lord, people would say the Lord wasn't able to bring them into this. Therefore he has slain them in the wilderness. And now I beseech thee, let the power of my Lord be great according as thou hast spoken, saying the Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation. Moses is simply saying, Lord, if you are long-suffering, we need that now. Pardon, I beseech thee, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of thy mercy. And as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. Please notice something, folks. Moses is recognizing that despite... Well, that's not a good way to say it. Let me try again. Moses recognizes that even though God has shown his great power that has gotten around, the knowledge of which has gone to every nation in that part of the world, when he delivered them through the Red Sea, delivered them from the hand of Egypt. Moses is saying, we still need your mercy. Moses was as strong in the mercy of God as he was in the power of God. And he's the only one that's handled the power of God personally up until that point. Folks, I think too often... And it may be the fault of those of us that teach on the subject of faith. But it's easy to come to the place where you recognize God fulfilling his word. You recognize the reality of speaking the word of God to bring to pass the blessings of God. But sometimes we forget about his mercy. Faith is not a work in and of itself. Faith is a privilege to operate according to the principles whereby God created this earth. But we never come to the place where we don't need the mercy of God. In fact, in my opinion, one of the greatest foundations for believing that God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him is to recognize that his mercy goes beyond even what our faith could bring. And the Lord said, in response to Moses, I have pardoned according to my word, according to thy word, but as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have tempted me now these ten times, and have not hearkened unto my voice. The ten times that, Moses, that uh, Israel tempted God must be one per each man concerning the ten spies. Surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers. Neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him and has followed me fully, him will I bring into this land whereunto he went and his seed shall possess it. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valley Tomorrow turn you and get you into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation which murmur against me? I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel, which they murmur against me. Say unto them, make sure you tell them this, Moses, As truly as I live, saith the Lord, as you have spoken in my ears, so will I do to you. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. This is exactly what Jesus says in Mark eleven twenty three. 23. When Jesus is 
explaining to the disciples how the fig tree dried up from the roots overnight. And he identifies to them that it was faith, the operation of faith that made it happen. He says, have the faith of God. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe in his heart that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Jesus is saying the same principle that God spoke in Numbers chapter 14 verse 28 was still working in his day. Notice it says, as truly as I live. How does God live? There are two characteristics of God's existence. One is, it's eternal. He is eternal. The second is, he is unchanging. So where it says, as truly as I live, one translation says it this way, it is the oracle of God. Now, an oracle of God just simply means what we just described. It means it is an eternal and unchanging principle. Eternal and unchanging. Eternal and unchanging. Eternal means it still works the same way today. Unchanging means there's been no variation in it whatsoever because it's of God. Say unto them, as truly as I live, saith the Lord, as you have spoken in my ears, so will I do unto you. Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and all that were numbered of you, according to your whole number, from 20 years old and upward. He didn't hold responsible the people under 20. According to your whole number, from 20 years old and upward, which have murmured against me, doubtless you shall not come into the land concerning which I swear to make you dwell therein, except, save Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. But your little ones, which you said should be a prey, them will I bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses, they shall fall in this wilderness. Remember I told you to take note of the words that they spoke after the congregation believed the ten spies report? They said, would God we have died in Egypt. Well, it was too late for that. They're not in Egypt anymore. But then the next thing they said is, would God, we had died in this wilderness. And God says, okay, I can do that. Now, folks, I want you to notice something very important about this story. And that is simply this. Everybody in this story got what they said. Everybody, without exception. The ten spies said they couldn't take it. They didn't. Within 24 hours, all ten of them were died. They had died. God struck them. They died on the spot. The children of Israel that accepted the majority report, who wanted to stone Moses and Aaron and Caleb and Joshua, and were only stopped by the glory of the Lord, they fell in the wilderness because they accepted what the, the ten spies said. They said, we should have died in Egypt or else we should have died in the wilderness. And they did. Caleb and Joshua, who said, we can go up and take the land, were the ones that took the land. Everybody in this story got what they said. Now, what's the reality? What's the, the principle? What's the, the moral of this story? Everybody gets what they say. Everybody gets what they say. So the God kind of faith, the faith that pleases God, the faith that re is rewarded by God, 
is to believe. It's the faith that believes in what God's word says, what God has communicated to us about who we are and what belongs to us, and speaks in line with what they believe. In other words, speaks in line with God's word. That's all Caleb and Joshua did. Caleb and Joshua just simply said, God's with us. How'd they know? Because God said, I'm with you. They said their defenses, the enemy's defenses are departed from them. How did they know? Because God said, I gave you the land. How did they know that the walls of Jericho wouldn't be any big deal or couldn't keep them out? Because God said, the land belongs to you. Doesn't mean they knew how the wall of Jericho would fall. It doesn't mean that they knew how these enemies would be defeated. It doesn't mean that they knew the end of anything other than what God said. The promised land is yours. And by the way, it's a land that flows with milk and honey. Everybody got exactly what they said. Now here's my question. I'll leave leave you with this. Here's the question. Why were the ten not willing to be influenced by Caleb and Joshua? Caleb and Joshua were right. Caleb and Joshua had told the truth. Why were the ten not willing to be influenced by the truth? Because they had their minds made up about how things worked. But what did they really know about anything? They didn't know a thing. They didn't know how God worked. They saw what he did in Egypt. But they did not allow that to influence their thinking or change their opinion of God because as soon as they get to the promised land and see inferior armies to to Egypt they say we can't do this what have they been doing for the last two and a half years since they came out of Egypt they've been concerned with the circumstances they've been talking about what a hard way it is they've been talking about how there's no water in certain places but then God performs a miracle so that water comes from a rock to feed them, to water their livestock as well as the people. None of the things God did have they allowed to change their idea about what God would do in the future. Did they ever believe that the promised land was theirs? I don't think they did. How could you not spend two and a half years thinking about that Red Sea thing. How could you not spend the two and a half years from the Red Sea to the land of Canaan and recognize they've seen the pillar of fire, they've seen the pillar of cloud. They've seen the power of God on Mount Sinai. They've seen the mercy of God even when they disobeyed. And had their little orgy party. When Moses came down from the mountain. They've got circumstance after circumstance. Things that they saw. To prove to them that God was on their side. And that they would prevail. Why did they refuse to allow it to influence them? Well for the same reason that people do that today. They became distracted and counted other things as more important. Folks, I would submit to you that there is nothing more important than what God has done for you and me through Jesus.
And anything that draws our attention away from that is a total waste of time and can in and of itself bring destruction upon us. Remember what God said. The eternal and unchanging principle. I will do unto them even as they have spoken in my ears. I always like to make sure that God hears me. Don't you? Lord, I confess deliverance. I confess healing. I declare abundance. I say that you're always with me and never forsake me. I say that you see me through. I say I'm more than a conqueror because of the love of Jesus. You know what I've started doing over the last couple of years? It came as kind of a, well, I'll tell you how it came. John 16, verse 13 talks about the Holy Ghost, one of the works of the Holy Ghost. It says he'll guide you into all truth. The word truth is the word reality. Now, I don't know why I didn't do this sooner. I guess, well, I'm not making excuses. But I know there have been a number of times in my life, and it seems to be pretty common from what I've heard other people say too. There have been a number of times where a cold or cold symptoms or something like that would come against me. And the first thing that I did was not to confess healing. But sometimes after it ran its course for a couple of days, then I thought, why don't I believe God about this? You ever done that? Well, I always kick myself and think, how stupid am I for not taking care of things spiritually the way that as soon as the the symptoms show up and that kind of thing. So I assumed that it was a similar thing with me. But a couple of years ago, the Lord opened my eyes to the Spirit of uh, the Holy Spirit guiding me into all truth or all reality. So since that time, I've started talking, calling on the Holy Ghost to guide me into the reality of certain things. I started off asking the Lord or confessing that because of what the Holy Ghost was sent to do, that he guides, guides me into the reality of healing. And it made a tremendous difference in the healing power of God working in my body. It was a turning point. Well, I've started doing that with the Holy Ghost in other areas too. I've started counting on the Holy Ghost to guide me into the reality of all the things that Jesus paid for. Guide me into the reality of abundance. Guide me into the reality of wisdom and so forth. You see the principle that I'm talking about, I hope. And in doing that, I have seen such a difference in the work of the Holy Ghost in my life. My body too, but in my life particularly. I'm talking about spiritual growth, spiritual changes, spiritual advancement. And it it dawned on me, finally, here I'm almost 63 years old, I finally learned something. But it dawned on me that the Holy Ghost is always there to help guide us into truth. He's there to help help guide us into the reality of the blessings of God that Jesus purchased for us. But unless we're speaking it, we're not in faith about it. The principle of faith, the God kind of faith, believes in the heart and says with the mouth. So I've started saying of myself, everything I catch or find out or see in the Bible that belongs to me. I've started confessing the blessings of God. And I'm not just talking about 
physical things. I'm not just talking about money or healing or that type of stuff. I'm talking about growing in God. I'm talking about spiritual advancements. I'm talking about forgiveness. I'm talking about walking in love. I'm talking about everything that Jesus has done for us. And it's like I'm living in a dream world. Because things that didn't come so easily in times past, now they're working. And it's like, why in the world did I not confess that the Holy Ghost was guiding me into the reality of these things before now? But it's gotten to the point where the Holy Ghost, most days, maybe three out of five days, will wake me up in the morning with scriptures to meditate on. I used to go through the, the Bible and meditate on ones that particularly stood out to me and that's all right there's nothing wrong with that but now i've got the holy ghost giving me scriptures to meditate on and it's amazing it's like it's working finally who knew (laughs) he's guiding me into the reality of a lot of things i never saw before Because of the eternal principle, as you have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you that you made us worthy through the blood of Jesus. You made us worthy of all of your blessings. Even as the word says, you have blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. We thank you, Father, that the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of truth, guides us into the reality of those things. Father, we recognize that as we speak your word, we have what your word says we have. As we speak healing, healing is made manifest. As we speak abundance, abundance becomes reality. We thank you, Father, that as we speak forgiveness, we become forgivers. As we speak the love of God, we become lovers. We are faith children of a faith God. Thank you, Father, for the work of the Holy Ghost in us. Thank you that because you are God, there's nothing that's too hard for you. We thank you that you are our rewarder because we put you first. We love you, Father. We thank you for a supernatural existence led and guided by the Spirit of God himself. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, let's all stand. Say it with me. The Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. Now say this after me. Because of the principle of God, that never changes and never comes to an end. I have what I say. I speak victory. I speak life. I speak health. I speak abundance. And I have what I say. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.